entrances like that at our church, and it's just blank stairs. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I was looking at the outline and trying to figure out, you know, how much of it really still uh, applies. And uh, the Monday evening uh, session, Roman numeral one, there's five Roman numerals. Roman numeral one was last night. And this morning, in my first talk, it'll be Roman numerals two, three, four, and five. I was pretty much on target with... uh, with that, developing a, uh, a ministerial relationship and uh, becoming acquainted, uh, it's pretty similar. So uh, we should be somewhat on target there before it changes radically later. I, uh, I was asked to uh, come and speak to a college career class of another church and... Uh, on uh, what I wish I knew when I was 20. That was their theme. And, um, and uh, I got up and I had a list of things, you know, that I wish I knew when I was 20. And uh, de- toward the end, I moved into theological things that I wish I knew. And one of them was, you know, the doctrines of grace. I wish I understood the doctrines of grace, uh, you know, uh, otherwise known as uh, Calvinism. And the, uh, the head of the group, who was a, kind of a young charismatic guy, uh, felt like he had to get up after me and do a disclaimer and uh, reveal to the group that it's okay for them to disagree with me and that, of course, he doesn't believe in Calvinism. And I just sat there and listened to him disagree with what I had just said. And um, afterward, we had a nice, friendly, very friendly discussion. And, uh, and it really was moved in a different direction because they had a very, very uh, contemporary style worship. And we were discussing what uh, worship really, sh- what should really happen in worship. And they, you know, coming from a more charismatic background, their worship is kind of, you're, you're working uh, at an emotional, visceral, but they would call it spiritual level to that place where in the worship you finally break through and make contact with God. And uh, so we got into this discussion and, uh, you know, my discussion, you know, my, my take on that was I'm not against emotions. I, I think that some people, when they come to understand the grace of God, may have a gushing emotional response. And I think that's, that's true. But that, that's a good thing. But I think, uh, you know, some, some of us don't. But that doesn't mean we don't uh, understand and believe the same thing. Some of us are just wired a little differently. And uh, some of us respond emotionally and some of us don't. But knowledge is the same. The knowledge of Christ and what He did and who He is is the same. And so people in that environment who aren't emotionally wired walk away feeling as if they haven't some really achieved a proper worship, even though they're dedicating their heart and their mind to understanding and praising God. But if they don't get that juice you know, that they're seeking to get. So we got into this discussion. And we, we strayed away from the Calvinistic discussion. And uh, as time went on, I was talking to a young man 
who goes to that group, and he, we got into the discussion, and he, he uh, is a, uh, a Calvinist. And uh, I said, well, you know, ask uh, the leader if he'd like to get together, and we could sit down and have lunch and have a friendly discussion on the doctrines of grace. And I never got a response. I ran into him again and, uh, at his church, and I was, uh, was with the senior pastor, and we were walking down the hallway, and I saw him, and I said, hey, how are you? And he gave me a look kind of like I don't really want to engage look. And I was being as friendly as I could possibly be. And I said, we, maybe someday we can get together and um, discuss the doctrines of grace. And he gave me another really blank look, and I kind of waited for a response, and he'll go, well, I'll, he said, I'll see how the Spirit leads me. <laughs> and and the Spirit forced, uh, conveniently the Spirit led him to never respond. And, uh, but this is what I want to address this morning. And that is the, uh, the, the engaging uh, uh, of our culture and developing this ministerial relationship and how the discussion uh, you know, ensues and how we, get, how we get that discussion going. But before we talk any further, let's, uh, let's come to the Lord in, in prayer. Father God, we do pray that you would help us to have seasoned speech. Help us, Father, to engage in a, a loving uh, and yet bold uh, manner that we might, Father, truly bring to our Christian friends uh, information about the gospel, information about the law of God, information, Father, about your kingdom, about your love, your grace, your mercy, and truly even, Father, your severity. Help us, Father, to minister uh, and minister well uh, and yet at the same time, in love and humility, we pray that you would grant us uh, people who would have willing ears to hear that, Father, your kingdom might be advanced through your spirit, through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So uh, half, the battle, uh, <laughs> half the battle in what I'm trying to talk about this week is, uh, is even having the discussion in the first place. I mean, the fact is, uh, many people, once they know that you have firm convictions in your uh, Reformed theology, don't even want to talk to you. They, they don't want to have the discussion. So that's half the battle is having the discussion. Half the battle is knowing your information, and the other half is imparting the information correctly. And I know that's one and a half, be that as I may. Uh, can, I ask, can I trouble somebody? I, I, I have a water on that back. Bill, that water, uh, could you drink it? No, just kidding. Could you bring, bring it up here? Um, you're, I'd really get dried out here talking. But, but that is a whole, the whole issue of actually having the discussion. Thanks, Bill. In order for us to engage with our evangelical friends, we must form these points of contact. We, we just can't you know, isolate ourselves off from them. There's got to be a place where we, we move in and we engage. And I think it's a shame that modern uh, evangelicalism has such a foul taste in its mouth for historic creeds and confessions in the church that hold to them. I mean, they really have a you know, get-away-from-those-kind-of-people mentality and I think that the, uh, speaking to our denomination, at least here in this particular presbytery, I think the OPC has amazing things to offer the wider evangelical community. 
And as I mentioned last, uh, last night, in one respect, I feel like I'm speaking here with my journey's end, at least ecclesiologically. You know, we, the very, probably the last thing our church did in terms of um, unifying ourselves, you know, with the, uh, the, you know, aligning ourselves with the Westminster Confession was join a denomination because we were independent. That was, you know, we had done all the things that we looked at, but one of them was, you know, synods and councils and uh, having that accountability to a wider ecclesiological body, which, uh, you know, we went out kind of like uh, the way somebody might church shop. We were like denominationally shopping, and, and we finally did that. And yet there was a lot of, why in the world would we do that mentality? Uh, and I, I had a lot of people, but I kind of emailed the friends of mine from different theological frames of mind, and there was a lot of warnings, and why, you know, what, what, and people in our church going, why, why are we doing a denomination? It's just a, it was, it's a real negative thing, and yet it, w- it was a very brief explanation um, that pretty much satisf- satisfied anybody who asked. And, you know, the, the explanation, because a lot of the things that you do, people are suspicious of. They think it's a power move. You know, they think you're trying to posture yourself into a place to, you know, get more. And what, we, what, what was easy to explain to our congregation was that this takes power away from us as an elder board. We're no longer the final, you know, um, you know level of accountability. That, uh, as one of our elders said when the elders were being examined, uh, he was telling our congregation, joining a denomination protects you from us. And so there's an accountability there. And uh, certainly we all recognize that in terms of a theological fail-safe, denominations aren't perfect. We've seen denominations go south. But uh, denominations, it's a lot harder for a denomination to go south than it is for a single church to go south. It's kind of like a, just a slower apostasy. It's, uh, there's just more accountability. Nonetheless, there's certainly a foul taste in people's mouths when it comes to being, being part of that kind of, a, of an organization. And generally, they just don't want to hear from you. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to engage in that discussion. And I think we need to seek to bridge that gap. And I think the way that we bridge that gap is to develop a ministerial relationship with our Christian friends. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I think with that we recognize that we have a responsibility as Christians, uh, first and foremost, to those within our own covenant community, but also to those outside of it. Now, whether or not we would consider those in the wider evangelical community of the household of faith is kind of a toss-up. Some churches are so out there that you wonder if it's Christianity at all, uh, but I think you know, we can operate in terms of giving people the benefit of the doubt as the confession talks about less perfect churches and not kind of come at it from a position of thinking that they're just outside of the realm of Christianity altogether. Nonetheless, I think we can, we've got to look beyond our borders And we've got to kind of look out there in the community and seek to somehow infiltrate, if you will, uh, the thinking of our evangelical friends. I think what you'll find is that for true Christians who are out there, true Christians going to many of the, uh, the popular churches today, their Bible study is often very unsatisfactory in terms of the conclusions drawn by the modern popular Bible teachers. What happens is if they really become students and they really start studying the Bible, they start getting unhappy in their church. They start getting unhappy with their own thinking about what their Christian faith means to them. 
and for you to be a voice of reason to help them realize and recognize the true blessings of the Christian faith is something that is, uh, is, it, people are in desperate, in desperate need of. And quite frankly, as we uh, discovered last night, many of them end up in your churches. That's the progression. They're at a popular church where the confession, quite frankly, is the opinion of the pastor, and it, you know, it's, a, it's a wind of doctrine type of thing you know, flowing here and there. And then, and then as they study and study and study, they end up uh, realizing, I can't stay at this church, and I need to move on. I remember years ago, we went, gosh, this was before I preached through the Revelation debacle, and uh, we, were, uh, we went to a Calvary Chapel men's, uh, men's conference. It was probably 16 years ago. And uh, we went in there, and they had a book table similar to this, only it was, it was a big conference, and it was, you know, thousands of people. And, uh, you know, uh, what's his name, Chuck uh, Smith and Raul Reese and the whole, you know, litany of Calvary Chapel guys. But when you went into the book room, uh, did, I, did I come in down again? Am I good? Okay. When you went into the book room, they had uh, The Sovereignty of God by Pink. Am I good? Am I working? No. Hello? Okay. We're all good. Okay. We're okay. Okay, good. Uh, we went to the book room. They had The Sovereignty of God by Pink. They had, uh, you know, Spurgeon's sermons. Uh, they, had, uh, real, they really had a, a lot of, you know, reformed thinkers in there. And um, interestingly enough, uh, we went back the next year. And we went in, and I walked through there, and Spurgeon was gone, and Pink was gone, and uh, I don't think they actually had Calvin in there, but they were all, all the reform works were gone. And I asked the guy, what, what happened to Spurgeon and, and Pink and, uh, and Hodge? They had some commentaries by Hodge. I go, what, what happened? Oh, he goes, oh, we ran out. And I go, well, this is, <laughs> this is the first day of the conference. Everybody, well, what happened was they, they uh, at their uh, Bible Institute, you know, they decided we, could, we need to get rid of this stuff. We need to get rid of this stuff. Well, what I have found is a lot of my uh, Reformed friends went through that particular seminary. Matter of fact, uh, Dave, who's uh, under care right now in the Presbytery, went through that seminary. What was the seminary called? Um, yeah. yeah, it's the Calvary Chapel Bible, Bible College. And uh, what happens was they had these really good Reformed books and people started reading them and becoming reformed, so their response was, get rid of the books. And that's a pretty common thing. They just don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that. That just causes trouble. And, uh, and I'll, I'll just mention in Calvary Chapel, not to get down too much on that, because, but I have more of a, uh, an experience with them. Years ago, they had a Calvinism versus Arminian pamphlet come out, and they tried to strike a balance, you know, which really wasn't a balance at all, but at least it was a feigned balance between the two, going, we're not going to make an issue of it, and we're just going to uh, recognize their disagreements. And if you read it, it was kind of more Arminian than Calvinistic, but, you know, it wasn't, they weren't pushing the issue. Now, they are, they've taken the gloves off, and they have just, a, uh, just an all-out assault upon uh, the doctrines of grace, i.e. Calvinism, and that's just something they view. If you believe that, you're really a dangerous, dangerous person, and they're publishing books against it. Uh, you know, you'll see, uh, there was a book came out by a guy named uh, Hunt, Dave Hunt. Does that sound familiar? 
and I did a class, and I used all these books. I mean, it's just a terrible, quite frankly, a terrible, terrible book. It's called What Love Is This? Calvin's Misrepresentation of God. And the, just the lo- theological and logical fallacies in that book are almost frustrating to read. And yet, you know, Chuck Smith endorses the book. Uh, they came out with another book uh, by a guy named George Bryson called uh, Calvinism, uh, Weight in the Balance and Found Want. Just an attack on Calvin, uh, Calvinistic thinking. The point I'm trying to make here is that you're, they don't want to hear from the Reformed community. And in the same way, as I mentioned last, last night, eschatologically, uh, you're viewed as a villain if you're not a premillennial dispensationalist. You're viewed as a dangerous theological person if you believe in the sovereignty of God as it's contained in uh, Reformed thinking, especially in the, the five points of Calvinism, which is what they're more, more familiar with in terms of representing uh, the Reformed thinking. Nonetheless, there is a dearth of contentment when it comes to their own Bible study. They recognize this isn't working. This isn't happening for me. And so it's at that point, I think, we need to uh, step in and seek to develop, before we develop kind of a pedagogical relationship, develop a ministerial relationship. Friends, it shouldn't surprise us that churches... Uh, have such aberrant doctrines. It shouldn't be any surprise. Uh, you, you read in uh, Galatians uh, 1.6, Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You know, people, um, in one of my dialogues with a very, very charismatic pastor, uh, his arguments against Calvin went back to the church fathers. He was really into the church fathers. He wasn't into the reformers. Uh, but he would appeal really to the second and third generation church fathers, and he found some uh, that, uh, in, you know, that many of us would feel quite uncomfortable with in terms of where their doctrine led. But he felt that their proximity to the, um, to the original apostles led to their credibility. And yet I think we could see that during the life of the apostles, the churches that the apostle Paul was writing to, had already begun to embrace terrible doctrines. And so uh, chronological proximity to the apostles in no way adds to the credibility of the doctrine. The fact that you can find somebody saying something in 100 A.D. or 70 A.D. or even during the life of the Apostle Paul in no way adds credence. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the doctrines became sounder as time went on, as church councils got together and as the Word of God was presented before them, and they argued it out, that the theology was, is getting sounder over the years, not less sound. And there's a couple of points I want to make to demonstrate that to be the case as we proceed here. But it shouldn't be surprise us when we look at doctrines within the church of the evangelical community being way out there. And um, I think in a certain sense, many of our Christian friends can be approached the way we might approach unbelievers. Now, this is something I think we need to be really careful about in terms of appearing condescending. Because you, if you, the moment you, feel, you appear paternal or domineering or condescending, uh, people pick up on that, and uh, that's not going to help the conversation at all. I don't think we should uh, take it upon ourselves to deny the genuine nature of the faith of our uh, evangelical brothers and sisters, but to recognize that the blatant errors in modern evangelicalism has left many professing Christians confused and desperate for, for answers. I think it's an interesting phenomenon that takes place. I, know, I don't know if you realize that uh, 
much of evangelicalism is very anti-intellectual. They're anti-thinking. They're anti-propositional. And so um, we have people who are outside of that community looking in at the evangelical community. They're looking at it going, these people aren't real thinkers. But I'm a thinker. And so I'll walk into that community, and maybe you have a convert, and immediately they're teaching. Uh, I don't, I've, I've been a, more of a volleyball guy. I played basketball in high school, and I was okay. You know, but I was more of a volleyball track guy. And um, volleyball is an interesting sport. It's a fun sport. But the fact of the matter is, the top 1,000 athletes in America never touch a volleyball. They're all, they, they're all playing basketball. I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, if we're going to be real about it, I mean, the best athletes are playing football. They're playing basketball, you know, maybe baseball, golf. No, just kidding. Um, and so it's an interesting thing when guys play basketball and they're pretty good basketball players, they come into the volleyball community thinking that they're immediately going to take over. They're like, well, you know, volleyball is, you know, it's a picnic sport. It's a girls' sport. You know, and they walk in, and they don't realize that volleyball is, you know, it's a good, it's, you know, like I say, it's not physically, you don't have those kinds of athletes, but you have them looking into that community, and they think, I'll walk right into that community, and I'll take over. And it doesn't really happen. The reason I mention that is because we have the same mentality in our culture of people looking into evangelicalism, and they're going, you know what, I'm going to walk in there, and I'm going to be a big fish in a little pond. And it seems that guys immediately upon their conversion are teaching. I mean, that's what they had us doing when I was with Campus Crusade for Christ. I mean, they gave, they gave us a quick little, you know, snap course in, in uh, theology, and immediately we were out on the streets, you know. We were out there ministering and teaching, and, and I was preaching, you know, to crowds of people. I didn't really know what I was talking about. It seems like the only criteria to be a minister was a willingness to talk. And that's what we have. And so we have people leading Bible studies and even in pulpits who are, quite frankly, grossly unqualified for the position. Well, I mean, I think in all humility, we have to recognize that in a certain sense, we're all grossly unqualified for that position. And I think that needs to be an underlying subtext of our thinking. Yet at the same time, that's what's happening in the, in the culture that I'm hoping we're going to address is that they view, quite frankly, seminaries as cemeteries, is the term they use. Oh, uh, one guy who's, who has uh, since then become a reformed person, and he's, uh, he's, lives in, uh, he's an Arizona guy, and he goes to, uh, he vacillates between this big Baptist church where he used to go to, and a small PCA church I think he's found there. Uh, but uh, he was talking to somebody in, in our church, and he gets our tapes, and he listens to them every, every week. But when, when this whole thing began, he asked my, our, my office manager, who was his brother-in-law, he said, so is your pastor uh, seminary trained or Holy Spirit trained? <laughs> See, those of you who take logic recognize that to be a false dichotomy. But that's the mentality. The seminaries are cemeteries. And the education just yields you know, bad things. And you've just got to allow the Holy Spirit to gush through you. And it doesn't matter what kind of qualifications you have. I think it's interesting that the followers of Jesus were with him for three years. It's the same amount of time that we generally have for a master's degree. And there here they followed the master for three, for three years. And Jesus did a lot of instructing. Well... 
how can we bridge this gap? How can we make this point of contact with our, with our evangelical friends? Because let me tell you, there is a pool of frustration out there. There's a, a real lack of contentment. And I think the contentment flows from a lack of understanding why they're even believers. Why, why they go to church. Why, what is it, you know, when I get to this, I'm going to get to this later on this week, but what is it that's supposed to be taking place? Because there's this promise of this kind of uh, visceral serenity that's going to come with the Christian faith. And if you jump through numerous hoops, that serenity will eventually come. I, I eliminated this particular talk uh, when I was going through it, but I, you know, the, uh, you'll see it in the outline somewhere, the pernicious uh, promise of purpose, which is so popular today with the whole purpose-driven thing and purpose-driven life, and the idea that in somehow in 40 days you're going to reach this level of Christianity where you're going to find this contentment that you didn't have before. Or that in 15 weeks you can learn how to be a Christian parent. You know, you, there's all these little hoops that you can jump through in order to reach this level. And you know what? They go through the hoops that they never reach the level. And that's why 50% of the people who go to churches that have more than 2,000 members, 50% of them leave every two years. It's a revolving door. They come, there's a promise, they hear, they jump through the hoops, it doesn't happen, they try God. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Try God. So they try it, it doesn't really work, and then they leave. Because it's, a, it's billed initially as something other than what it is, that you're a sinner and Jesus came to save sinners and you must trust in Him. And we praise God continually for the fact that He's delivered us from condemnation. And that, that's got to be the message over and over and over. But now if you were to ask Christians what that is, and we'll, again, I'm going to get to that later, you're going to find that that's not what they're thinking. So we need to develop, I think, a ministerial relationship, ministerial relationship very similar to the way we would develop a relationship with our neighbors who aren't believers. And again, I, I take a deep breath when I say that because we don't wanna, you don't want to sound condescending about that. You don't want to sound develop a sense of self-superiority. Otherwise, certainly you've disobeyed our Lord in terms of the disposition we ought to have. And you've, not, you've really uh, you know, stepped on your own foot in terms of developing a good relationship with your neighbor. So we need to keep that in mind. There needs to be always a genuine pursuit of humility and recognizing that when it really comes right down to it, all we are as Christians is one beggar telling another beggar where to get a piece of bread. And the moment we think we're the ones making the bread, uh, we've really stepped uh, beyond, our, uh, beyond our boundaries in terms of, of uh, a genuine humility. But here are some ways I think we can develop a ministerial relationship. And this is a very much a, this is very much a practical uh, thing that I know that I've experienced. I think it's very biblical, and yet at the same time it's more maybe social than anything else. First of all, uh, you need to get to know them. I mean, that's, how simple is that, right? You need to know. You need to know them. Now, who are they? They're the guy and his wife who live next door to you. They live across the street. They're the guy on the table, the desk, you know. They're the mom at the thing, you know, at the bank. They're just the people out there. I would really encourage you to try to get to know your species. I, uh, you know, I mean, I, maybe I'm just wired that way, but I'm fascinated at the human race. Uh, you know, I, I know the names of all the workers at the Starbucks, at a few different Starbucks. I know the names of the people at my bank. I talk to them. We engage. You, you, you get out there and you engage and you get to know them and know their names. People will be freaked out when they know that you know their name. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Whoa, you know, he knows my name. 
And isn't it interesting how um, the 16th chapter of Romans, if you, if you do a Bible study through Romans, you get to the 16th chapter and you're like, well, wh- wh- what am I going to do now? There's not a whole lot of doctrine here. There's just a whole lot of names, a whole lot of people. Isn't it interesting that God, by his Spirit, had determined that there'd be the names of all these people that the Apostle Paul would recognize and encourage and talk about in a whole chapter of the most you know, doctrinal book probably in the whole Bible. So I think it's a very biblical thing to get to know people, get to know their names, get to know something about them, get to know people. Secondly, I think, you need to, I think we need to develop a concern and a care You've got to start caring. And I, you know what? Let me tell you a little honest testimony. I'm, I haven't been, I'm not wired that way. I was raised in a very kind of jock mentality, sink or swim. You know, I remember teasing people when I was a teenager until they cried. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't raised as a warm, fuzzy, you know, there, there, how you doing kind of person. And um, I recognized uh, the last time I made somebody cry that this is probably not right. This is a wrong thing to do, to tease people, you know, till they cry. So I shouldn't do that. It seemed unbiblical. And then as time went on, I made a, commitment, <laughs> made a commitment to try to do the right thing, even though I didn't feel that way. You know what I'm saying? I didn't, it wasn't like I just, I knew a pastor. It seemed like he immediately fell in love with people right at the door. And he'd be weeping with them. And I'm like, what is that? Where is this coming from? You know, I want some of that. I want to be that way. I'm just not that way. And I found that, um, as I mentioned last night, it's through, uh, it was through being accused of being a cult leader that really, you know, motivated me uh, theologically uh, to pursue a sound understanding of the Christian faith. But it's also, uh, it was also through great, you know, so it was through the accusation that I grew theologically. But I found that it was mainly through great pain that I grew in terms of my love and care for other people. There was just no easy way to, to grow that way. And so God, in his divine decree and providence, had determined that my life would be, go through some very, very difficult periods where all of a sudden I'm watching television and I see a, that there was a plane wreck and I know that the people are going to get those phone calls you know, that I got. And I'm sitting there watching TV and my, my eyes are filling up with tears and I'm like, where is this coming from? And it's just God kind of going, look at, you know, you wanted to be a more of a compassionate person. You know, Jesus felt compassion on the crowd. You wanted it, well, here, I'm going to deliver this. And yet, at the same time, it had to be a willful act on my part to not only properly respond to the difficulty, but to desire and to, and to actually act and behave in such a way as to exhibit the compassion and the care and the concern, even if I didn't feel it. You know, we, we, that's what makes us spiritual people, right? And not carnal people. The carnal person does what they feel like doing. That's the whole nature of carnal. You're doing what you feel like doing. The spiritual person does what he knows is right because the Holy Spirit has opened his eyes to the truth of God's Word and you become a person of conviction rather than a person governed by their feelings. But I'll tell you what's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing when all of a sudden you find that what you feel like doing is the right thing. Now that usually comes, you know... Well, I'm hoping that'll hit me at about 70. You know, I mean, that comes with a lot of pain. That comes with a lot of time. It comes with, quite frankly, pursuing these types of things. But it comes. C.S. Lewis called that, I think he called it, putting on Christ. And uh, my illustration for this is when I was 30, 
Um, I got an injury, and I'm always getting injuries off and on. I've been pretty fortunate uh, lately, but uh, I had an injury, and I couldn't play uh, volleyball for some reason. I think I couldn't lift my arm up over my head. I forget what it was, but I took up tennis. For some reason, I could play tennis. I had, my injury allowed that. And I, I had never played tennis before, and I had a, uh, a coach. He was in his 60s, and he was, I was a national champion for his age. His, his wife was my sixth-grade teacher, and I just knew him. And I said, hey, Jack, can I take lessons? He's like, sure, you know, come and take lessons. And so, talking about how it's, uh, there was no remedial learning, because I didn't have any bad habits. I'd never played. But he's showing me how to swing a tennis racket. I'd never played. But it really was kind of counterintuitive. It didn't feel right. He goes, he goes, you drop the ball. He goes, you know, you do this. And he showed me how to do it. And I'm like, wow, that feels weird. But the ball was going in the right direction, even though it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like, I felt like doing this. He's like, no, no, you got to do this. I'm like, that feels good. And it's going over the, it's going over the fence, though. I'm like, okay. I go, so I'm, I take lessons for about a month or two. And guess what? After like two months of lessons, I'm playing with my friends who've been playing for years, and I'm beating them. I don't feel right about it. <laughs> but I'm, win- I'm winning games, and I'm doing this really unnatural thing. so unnatural. And I played for about a year. Guess what? After about a year, that became my natural swing. It became the way I felt right about doing it. It's, so, so for a while, I had to do something that felt unnatural, and I had good success with it. But as time went on, it became the natural thing. And I think that's what we have to recognize as a spiritual person. We do what is the right thing, regardless if it doesn't feel right. And then we pray that in time, God will conform the way we feel to the way we believe. And you know what? If that never happens, so be it. You still do what is right. And one of the things that's right is we get to know our neighbors and we develop a love and a concern for them. We care about them. One of the things we also uh, can do is, 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 to, is to reach out to them in such a way that you begin to engage in a ministerial way. A neighbor came over to my house, and uh, we live in an area with a lot of Roman Catholics. They call it Vatican Valley. In fact, if you step out of my backyard, we've got a nice little view, and there's a big St. Lawrence Church and the Virgin Mary. It's a big, gigantic thing. I have to look at every morning as I'm drinking my coffee, and there's the Virgin Mary, you know. <laughs> And a lot of our neighbors are Roman Catholics, and I had, one of them, you know, came over to work on my house, and uh, he's actually, a, he's a cop, but he also does, you know, construction, and he came to f- fix something, and I didn't really know him very well. He was a reference from another cop who comes to our church, and so, uh, you know, I'm talking with them, and, you know, just engaging in light conversation. So, you know, so you guys live down the corner here. Yeah, yeah, you know, so how many kids do you have? Three, and your wife's, what's her name? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen her, and so how is it? He's, and he's, you know, and I'm asking, you know, I'm just you know, I, used, I was a journalism major for a while, right? So you got the who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So I'm asking them all the questions. And I'm really kind of, you know, I'm interested in who is this guy and who's your family? And, and finally he goes, yeah, you know, his wife was, um, had um, what's it called Epstein-Barr, I think. You know, he's like, yeah, and he, all of a sudden he's like, yeah, you know, she's been kind of sick. I go, it's really what's the matter? Well, she's got this thing, Epstein-Barr, they don't know how to treat it, blah, blah, blah. So I go, would you mind if we as a church... And I, you know, I realized that for me to go, let's pray. Might not have really worked really well with him as his hammer and his nail gun in his hand, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, would you mind if our church prayed for her? And he's like, uh, no. You know, who's going to say no to that, right? 
you have to be pretty hardcore. So he, no, he said, no, that'd be fine. So, you know, we, we put her on our prayer list and we prayed for her. And then a lady in our church came up and said, you know what, I know the best doctor for that, in the, really, in the country. And he's right here in this area. And I was able to go down and knock on the door. And I go, you know what, this doctor was recommended. You know, and she ended up being referred to that doctor anyway by her doctor. Well, but the point is, I, de- I developed with him a ministerial relationship. And it wasn't initially a doctrinal relationship. It was initially a ministerial relationship. I wanted him to know that, you know what, there's a community of people who care about you, who love you, who are willing to, to pray for you. You know, you're moving into a level that's spiritual. Same thing with another friend of mine whose daughter ended up in the hospital, 16-year-old daughter ended up in the hospital. You know, I went and visited her in the hospital, put her on the prayer list. Called the house, you know, how's she doing? Blah, blah, blah. So you develop these types of relationships. You know, there's, a, there's not a lot of that going on. There are not a lot of people out there who are praying for other people in their community. We do it within our own community, but it's almost shocking to them, and it's a breath of fresh air to people. So we've got, we got to get to know them. We've got to develop a care and a concern for them. And you know what happens? This has happened, in, you know, and I know, speaking, I'm a pastor, so it's easier for me because that's my job and people know I'm a pastor. So it's really harder for those of you who aren't pastors because people are not going to be so uh, interested maybe in your opinion. But what has happened, uh, what, what has happened in these situations, because I wasn't their pastor, is all of a sudden I get a phone call going, hey, you know what, I have a question. You know, my wife and I are, you know, there's a, and, uh, there's a difficulty we're struggling with. Do you mind if we talk with you? And my other neighbor, one right across the street, you know, they're having issues. And I go, sure, come on in, you know. And so we sit in, you know. And they're, they're again, they're, they've got kind of Roman Catholic backgrounds, but neither one of them go to church at all. And I'm listening to these, these issues, you know. And I'm again, in, in this counseling session, I'm getting to explain to them what a marriage ought to look like. And guess what a marriage ought to look like? Marriage ought to look like Jesus loving his bride and the bride responding in trust. I get to share the gospel with them in terms of what a marriage ought to look like. Even though they're not believers, it's God's, mar- it's God's institution, and this is what it ought to look like. And then we had a little thing I called the pub, and I was going to do the pub here, but uh, we decided to change it to this, where I get together with these people in my community as a matter of fact, all the people I've just talked about I've had, and I invite them to, a, uh, to the house, and we have a little, uh, a little wine and some appetizers. And uh, for those of you who are Baptists, I guess you can use Martinelli's. Uh, but we, we choose the wine to take the edge off and facilitate discussion, as I say on my flyer. And we get in and we talk for five weeks. We talk for, about, you know, for five weeks on, on what is the Bible and why should we believe it, who is God and why should we believe in God, how, to, how, to, you know, what is, what is, uh, how do we determine ethics, uh, why do people go to heaven, how do people go to he- you know, why do people go to hell, how do people go to heaven, and then the last week is the church, how come there are so many different churches, you know, why is church necessary, and, we, and, and we've had these, and we have these discussions, and it's been amazingly fruitful, and uh, there have been conversions, and, uh, but it's a matter of, of engaging, caring, loving, communicating, and then taking that step where you're going, when I wrote them that letter and I invited them over, it wasn't a shock to them that I wanted to talk to them. Basically, it was like, remember that discussion we had? We want to finish it at our house, and we have a nice and environment, unthreatening environment, and uh, you do things like this. Now, that's my formula, you know, having the pub. That doesn't have to be your formula. You might just invite them to church or, or whatever it is. But there needs to be, I think, a point of contact. And again, 
virtually none of these people I'm talking about are atheists. A lot of them are Roman Catholics. Some of them were people who were raised in the church and don't go anymore, which is a lot of people. And other people are those who have, you know, attending churches and they're just kind of confused about the whole, the whole thing. The final analysis where you want to go with this is to reveal your faith as Jesus taught. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. There's a matter of a point where it's interesting in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that. And then right after that he says, you know, don't do your works as to be seen by men. And yet here he's saying, let your, let your good works shine in order to glorify your Father who's in heaven. We tend to think that, you know, we don't want to, you know, wear our religion on our sleeve. I remember when I was at that PCUSA church, it was my job. I was the chaplain of the elder board. It was my job to do the devotion before the elders meeting or the session. And, uh, and I would go to the different elders and I'd say, would you mind, you know, taking the first ten minutes and, uh, you know, saying, teaching something? And they were, un- I remember one guy coming up and he goes, you know what, that's something I could never talk about. It's just so personal to me. I'm like, yeah, but you're an elder in the church. You know, how could you not be willing to share your perspective on what you think the Bible teaches? And, it, and there's just an unwillingness. It was just such a secretive thing. And yet, we don't do it for our own glory, but at the same time, you do your works in such a way to glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if there's no sense that you're doing this as a Christian, then it's really not glorifying your Father who is in heaven in that sense that I think Jesus is talking about. And again, in all of this, and this is a real... This is real tricky. I think we need to be careful to avoid appearing to be know-it-alls. You know, that's... Was that those are shirt, right? People who think they know it all are, um, bother, are terribly botherum, bothersome, especially to those of us who actually do. <laughs> you know, there's a sense. You gotta, we got to... I don't know. I don't know how it is for you, but I feel like um, there was a time when I felt like I knew a lot and then as you grow, uh, you open little doors, you open little theological doors, and you're in this big, gigantic room where you realize, I don't know anything. And I think we all have to kind of recognize the, the incomprehensibility of God in terms of the quantity of God and uh, how that should humble all of us. And I think we really need to always have that in mind when we're uh, speaking on behalf of God. And I think that we have to really work hard at not appearing to be like I said, uh, paternal and domineering and ostentatious and all those things. I've mentioned to you a couple of examples of what I would consider to be success stories in terms of my sharing with other pastors in these low, really slow, long process, you know, of having a relationship and talking. And I had a phone call, but I, you know, on the other side of it, I had a phone call from another pastor who one of these, he just got his ministry and, uh, I don't want to. Say, I always try to say these things anonymously, even though you guys don't have, won't have any idea what I'm talking about. So I've got to be careful not to be too descriptive, you know. Uh, but one of these pastors said, "You should meet with Pastor Paul before you take to the pulpit," you know. And so we sat down, and um, he actually became uh, he transferred from from um, Foursquare to AOG for some uh, utilitarian reasons, you know, in terms of a facility. And so we, so we sat down, and we're having lunch, and um, I'm like, so how was that, you know, how was the test that you went through? And we started talking. And I knew, I had known this guy for a long time. Matter of fact, I hired him at the PCUSA church as my junior's director, you know, 15 years earlier. So I knew him. And as we're talking, he's telling me, and we get into this discussion about the Assembly of God and their view of tongues and 
word of knowledge and prophecy and what have you. And uh, part of me was saying, we're not far along enough in the relationship for me to engage. I just want to have lunch and talk and develop, you know. And yet, you know, I broke my own little rule and I started making an argument uh, that you can't have a view of continuing revelation and be sola scriptura at the same time. You just can't. It's logically, uh, you know, incompatible. And we got into it and he just, you know, the hair on his neck went up and he just was like, he actually said, I think you think you're smarter than me. This is actually what he said. And, you know, I dealt with this later, you know, and I backed off and I said, but, you know, there was that sense where I, obviously I was presenting myself in such a way uh, as to just really offend uh, his sensitivities. And, uh, you know, I backed way off and we've communicated since then. I'm trying to rebuild that. But I think what I'm saying is we've got to be careful about not doing that, where you're just unnecessarily kind of stepping on somebody's toes. Now, I recognize that there's a place to offend. I'm not saying that at all. Jesus, you know, Jesus told parable after parable, right? And his followers came up to, you know, the Pharisees were offended at what you said. I mean, so being, offending somebody isn't necessarily wrong. But here's a guy who was, I mean, he wasn't a Pharisee. He's a Christian. He believes the Bible. He believes it's the word of God. And I think I just stepped in. I just went a little too aggressive, a little too fast. And I think you need to develop those types of ministerial relationships and earn the right to be heard where they actually want to hear what you have to say. I think is kind of an important thing. Again, I, don't, I think don't ever call good evil and evil good. Don't ever, you know, don't ever go down that road. I'm not talking about you know, compromise. What I'm talking about is being sensitive to your audience in the same way that I'm trying to be sensitive to my audience here, which is why I rewrote all my talks, because I'm thinking, who am I talking to here? I don't want to be condescending. My original talks would have been very condescending, quite frankly, I think, to people here. Maybe they are anyway. I don't know, but I'm doing my best not to be. And here's something else, too, that I think is gigantic in terms of communicating the Reformed faith to our evangelical friends. And I, this is one that I broke. This, I broke this one for years before I finally kind of ch- changed my method on this presentation. The Reformed faith, whatever doctrine it is you happen to be talking about, must be presented in the form of a blessing over a polemic. I think that's really, really important. I mean, you know, some people you get in an argument with, you know, if Al and I are in the office, we can argue. It's not like he's going to, you know, I'm going to cloud up and rain all over, and, you know, we're all going to walk away. You know, Dave and I, who's our associate uh, elder, he's, gonna, he's under care. We fight, you know, argue. You know, it's fine. We walk away going, oh, let's go have lunch. Uh, because we understand the relationship that can handle that. Uh, but oftentimes you immediately engage in the fight. You go to the Bible study and it's you're arguing. Rather than recognizing, let me tell you, it was a discovery of mine was that the truth is the truth, but it's not merely the truth, it's the best. If it's in fact the Word of God, if it in fact is true, it's the best thing. It's not just the true thing. And so to present the truth in terms of the way the doctrines are to be understood I think there's a skill in kind of tying a bungee to that and to the blessing that comes with it. I remember having an argument for years and years with this lady in our church who just did not, just did not want to accept, um, again, the five points of Calvinism is oftentimes you know, a point of discussion. She just did not want to accept this. 
and we'd argue and argue, and I, you know what, I mean, in all honesty, I'd win every argument. And then she'd walk away and come back, we'd argue and argue, and I'd win. But she'd never change her mind. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me what was really going on here. What was going on was she had, her, she had a dad who wasn't a believer. And it was, she was having a kind of a psychologically a difficult time with the fact that God may not choose her dad, kind of. You know, that's where she was with this. So I asked her, I go, well, let me ask you a question. In whose hands would you prefer your father's soul to be? Would you rather your father's destiny was ultimately in his own hands? Because you've already indicated that he's hard to God. She's like, no. Would you rather that your father's soul be in destiny be in your hands? She's like, no. Mine? No. Isn't the greatest comfort in knowing that in an ultimate sense that the destiny of your father is in the hands of God? And you know what? That, that made a big difference to recognize that it wasn't just a doctrine that we're talking about, although we are talking about a doctrine, but it's a great blessing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. The doctrines of grace are a wonderful thing. And they're eminently consolatory. I mean, they just are so comforting if you understand them. And I think that we have to recognize that we need to understand not just what's right, but why it's a, such a blessing. Why is, it, why is this such good news to hear? And I think it needs to be presented that way. And uh, when it's presented that way, uh, people then recognize that here's a person who really wants to bless me, not a person who just wants to beat me. And I think there's a tendency uh, for us to do that. Another thing, I think, here in the outline, what's my time frame here? Where am I at? 10.30? At 10.30 I have a couple of minutes? <laughs> See how I purposely was confused? <laughs> yeah, because I can finish this because it dovetails right into the next Next thing. So let me just say, I just got two little points here to make, and then we'll we'll move into the next. We'll take a break, and we'll move into the next uh, the next thing. I think also in order for us to know how to understand our evangelical friends, we have to anticipate their confusion by being somewhat acquainted with what they believe. I think we need to know what's out there. I just referenced the Purpose Driven Life, for example. I mean, I think you all probably should read it. I mean, it's it's. I don't agree with it. I, don't, I think there's some good things and bad things. I would not recommend it. I did a class on it and gave my review. And, uh, you know, but it's out there. You can't just ignore it. It's affecting uh, your community. It's affecting people in your church. You know? I mean, obviously, the whole Da Vinci Code, we didn't do a thing at our church because it just became too crazy. But I wrote an article. I write a column for our local newspaper. I wrote an article about it just to address it. I think those things need to be addressed. You know, people need to hear and understand. But I think we need to know what's affecting their mind. Even the Apostle Paul, you know, at Mars Hill said, in 1728 of Acts said, For in him we live and move and have our being. For also, as some of your own poets have said. See, he was familiar with what the poets had said. He knew what the worldly thinking was. He knew what the Greek philosophers were saying. Matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, six times Jesus says, You have heard it said. Right? In chapter 5, you've heard it said, but I say. So he knew what was being taught out there. He wasn't ignorant of what was being influencing, not only influencing the people, but influencing God's covenant people. He knew how they were being instructed. He knew what was out there in terms of what needed to be dealt with. Now, some of you go, you know, if you're like me, you're not a super fast reader, so you're like, I can't read all the books. I don't have, you know, all the time to... I think, you know, that's fine, but one of the things that you can do when you're engaging your, your friends 
is just listen to what they are saying. I mean, really listen. Don't just wait for your turn to talk. Really listen to what it is that's going on in their mind. Uh, Before you offer your opinion, know your audience. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a, I mean, I have a degree in apologetics, but I'm, I'm not a super expert on the cults. You know, I mean, I know, I know probably enough to engage the Mormon at the doorstep and the Jehovah's Witness and what have you. But I, I remember the way I address Mormons, I don't, you know, get out Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults and go down the whole... And the way I address Mormons when I'm talking with them is I ask them this. I go, so what's the difference between what you believe and what historic Protestant Christians believe? What's the difference? And I wait for them to tell me how they're different from what I believe because I can't address that. Because they'll say something like, well, we don't believe, for example, that Jesus is God, which is obviously a big point, right? Well, now they've told me that, right? I don't have to figure it out. They've said, and I, and I, then I say, well, what would make you think that? Why would you believe that? So you engage by listening to what they have to say. I think it's really important to really hear your audience, really he- in the discussion, really be a genuine listener. <laughs> I had a time, one time, I was, because I have a sports background, I was hired to come and address this Asian audience who had come uh, to, I don't remember where it was, they were coming to learn about American sports. And so it was my job to teach them about sports in America. And I started with, uh, you know, Little League and AYSO and how they work from there, and then there's the the schools have the sports program, and then there's club programs, and then there are college programs, and then there are post-college programs, and then there's, a, you know, in baseball they have farm leagues. And, and I'm doing all this stuff. I'm talking for about 40 minutes. And then I ask this rhetorical question. Now, I don't expect people to answer a rhetorical question, but I expect a little head nodding, right? Well, I get no head nodding. So I ask it again, only this time not as a rhetorical question. I ask it as a question where I want a response. So there's about 50 people in the room. And I get no response. So I say, how many people here speak English? (laughs) One guy. (laughs) They listened to me for 45 minutes. And they didn't understand a word I said. I think they just liked watching me. I think they're just like, that guy is funny to watch. You need to know your audience. You need to know what they're hearing, what they're believing, what they're thinking. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and, uh, and close with a, ber- a prayer, and then we will take a break and come back. Father God, we do pray that you would give us hearts that would really, truly, genuinely care about our neighbor. And Father, if we find in our own hearts a lack of compassion, we pray, Father, that nonetheless we would obey and do what we know we ought to do in loving our neighbor, caring about them, in hopes, Father, that they would truly want to know of the hope that we have. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be um, truly a, a, a part of that cure and true good stewards of that grace, Father, that you've, uh, that you've granted us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.